baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past... This weekend marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, the first time humankind stepped foot on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Even 50 years later, the historic feat stands as a monument to American perseverance and technological ingenuity. But while those brave astronauts were up there, they were doing more than just planting flags. They were also getting some important science done as well. I'm Keith Menconi. This is In Depth. And today on the program, we're going to mark the moon landing anniversary by holding a conversation on lunar science with a guy who is very well positioned to help us navigate this rocky terrain. Andrew Fracknoy has been called the Bay Area's public astronomer. He is also the emeritus chair of Foothill College's astronomy department and currently teaches at the Fromm Institute at the University of San Francisco. He spoke earlier on the topic this past week at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and he joins us now. Andrew Fracknoy, thanks for being on the program. Nice to be with you. Very happy to have you. And uh, amid all these celebrations of this achievement, I kind of wanted to carve out a little bit of a, a space for us to understand what the actual learning, a scientific learning was that was going on during the moon missions. Uh, and also talk a bit about what science there is left to be done, because there is a lot left unknown. Despite how close the moon is, it still has a lot of mysteries for us. So let's start with what we learned from these missions, from these famous missions that we're all talking about uh, this weekend. What kind of scientific information were we able to gather during those manned missions between 1969 and 1972? Well, I think perhaps the greatest achievement of the Apollo program was that they brought back 842 pounds of rocks and soil from another world. Mm. And these samples from various parts of the moon became very important clues in our understanding how the moon came about, what's happening now on the moon, and to some degree the future of the Earth-Moon system. Um, it was interesting to see that of the 12 people who walked on the moon, only one was a scientist, mm. the last one. But each of the astronauts before they went to the moon had been trained in enough geology to be able to notice what kind of rocks might be interesting for scientists and what kind of rocks they can leave behind. <clears throat> in addition, they also looked at soil, not just the Martian rocks, but the underlying material that the, that the moon surface was made of. And it turned out to be very interesting as well. The dust of the moon uh, also gave us lots of clues about the history of the moon and the history of the Earth. Interesting. So there are actually boring moon rocks that you'd just want to leave behind? Well, of course, if you're a true geologist, you'd want to grab every rock you could. But they were particularly looking for a variety of rocks. So mm. rocks of different kinds, rocks with different origins. And, you know, it's just so striking when you look at the photos of the moon. When, when You just kind of forget 
obviously we're all so familiar with the moon, we get used to it. But when you forget how used to it you are and actually think about those first photos of the moon, it's really a striking small planetoid, you know, compared to anything else in uh, the solar system. It, it doesn't look like anything else. Well, so, so here's the real mystery for us that we tried to solve. The Earth shouldn't have a moon. Mm. Uh, none of our neighbor planets, none of the planets that resemble us, have one. Mercury doesn't have one. Venus doesn't have one. Mars doesn't have a real moon. It's got a couple of asteroids that it's captured, but they look like small diseased potatoes. They're not really the kind of moons you bring home to mom with mm. pride. So none of the inner planets have a moon. <laughs> and we have a moon that's mm -hmm. about one quarter of our size, which is a really large proportion for a moon. None of the outer planets that have lots of moons have any moons that are one quarter their size. Mm. So the mystery has always been, where did our moon come from? Why is it there? And how does it fit into the larger picture of the solar system? All right. Well, the origin of the moon is a great place to start our conversation on moon science. So... We do know a little bit about that, right? Well, we thought we knew a bit about that. When we went to the moon, we had two theories about where the mm -hmm. moon came from. One theory said the moon somehow came out of the Earth or formed at the same time as the Earth. Mm. And if that was true, then the moon rocks and the moon materials would be very similar to the Earth. Mm -hmm. Another theory was that the moon formed somewhere else in the solar system and eventually came by and was captured by the Earth. Mm. If that's true, then the moon material should be a bit different mm. from the Earth. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, we'll just go to the moon, we'll get the rocks, and we'll figure out which of the two it is. Well, it turned out to be neither. What? <laughs> it turned out that the moon rocks were sort of similar to the Earth, but not exactly. Mm. And the moon rocks were sort of different from the Earth, but not different enough. And it was much more complicated than we ever thought. In those days, when the moon rocks had been analyzed for a year or so, you could see lunar experts tearing their hair out <laughs> at astronomy meetings. But eventually, two teams of astronomers, both here in the U.S., came up with a theory that fit the actual facts about the moon rocks and the moon materials that we brought back. We now believe that the moon formed in a violent collision mm. between an early mini-planet mm -hmm. that hit the Earth or glanced off the Earth many, many billions of years ago when the planets were first forming, mm. that it took a violent collision uh, where some of the material of the Earth sheared off, the material of this mini-planet got destroyed, and a cloud of debris mixing the material from the two then went into orbit around the Earth, and that cloud of leftover material from this great collision eventually coalesced by gravity to form the moon. And that's why the moon is similar to the Earth, because it has a lot of Earth materials in it. Mm. But it's different enough because it also incorporates some of the material of this mini planet that gave its life in mm. this collision to give us a moon. Interesting. So a little from column A, a little from column B. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing about science is so often when you get more information, things become more confusing, not less confusing. That's right. And there are still details to be worked out exactly mm. what kind of collision it was, whether that mini planet may, was made here in the inner solar system or came from somewhere else in the solar system. Uh, there's still a lot of debates. And uh, now people think that the collision produced first a, a kind of bagel-shaped structure between the two worlds. And only then did it coalesce into a, 
into a moon. So there's lots of details to be worked out, but most of the facts seem to fit this giant impact hypothesis. So the the moon actually, I was doing a little bit of reading before we started this conversation, the moon and the earth, they both form into more or less the formation that they're in pretty early on in the solar system's development. And then the moon, most of those pockmarks that we see on it also occur fairly, not not at the very beginning, but relatively early on in all things That's, considered. You, you've done excellent homework. <laughs> I commend you. Absolutely. So we think that the moon formed uh, about four plus some odd billion years ago. Mm -hmm. So we think the age of the solar system is about four and a half billion years and maybe 4.4, 4.3 billion years ago when things were still very unsettled in the solar system is when this giant collision happened. And then the Earth and the Moon settled down and there were still a lot of things roaming around the solar system, big chunks and small chunks. I like to say that janitorial services were not up to par in those days. There was a lot of garbage left over, and things hit. And so there was a period of intense early bombardment, which hit the Earth, but on Earth that's been long been erased by all the changes that happen on the Earth, the motion of the continents, earthquakes, weather, etc., but on the moon, we still have all these early giant impacts left over. And they make those dark markings on the moon, the big round dark marks that you can see even with your naked eye or certainly through binoculars on the moon. Those were these early chunks that hit the moon and they made such a big crater, such a deep crater that molten lava welled up from underneath and filled the moon with these smooth dark lavas. And they are the lava plains. Hmm. Of the moon that 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 is that are so round and easy to see, and also interestingly, the, I, those lava plains form more on the side of the moon facing us than the side facing away. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the great mysteries that has come out of the space program. So we call these rounded lava plains Maria because the ancients thought that these were oceans. They look so dark and smooth. They I'm going to learn how to oceans or seas. I'm going to learn how to say a lot of words right now that I've only ever read. This is exciting. Maria. All Maria right. is the way you say it. And so there are many more Maria on the side of the moon facing us than the what we call the far side of the moon that we don't get to see from Earth. Because the moon and the Earth are locked in a gravity embrace, we only see one side of the moon. The moon goes around us at the same rate that it goes around itself. So it spins at the same rate that it orbits. And that means we only get to see one side of the moon. And that side has many more of these dark blotches, and the far side has fewer. And we're not sure why. The crust of the moon is thicker on the other side, but why mm. that is is still a mystery. Wow. All right. So clues and mysteries all intertwined on the surface of the moon. We're going to get to more of that as our program continues. I want to remind anybody who's just joining us, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into some of the major trends and topics shaping life here in the Bay Area. Today we're talking about moon science on the Apollo 11 anniversary weekend, what we know, what we have left to learn, and how we might learn it. Our guest is Andrew Fracknoy, who is the Emeritus Chair of Foothill College's Astronomy Department. And I want to get into a couple more of the things that we left behind on that moon, aside from the flags. I understand that another thing that we left on the moon is a, a reflector so that we can bounce lasers off of that. Why did we do that? What did we learn from that? So this is, yeah, this is one of the great experiments of the last 50 years. Uh, several of the teams of astronauts left behind a laser reflector, which was aimed at the Earth. 
and then an observatory in Texas and other observatories too, aimed a powerful laser at those reflectors and bounced the light back into the telescope. And this enabled us to measure the distance to the moon. Just like if you know how fast your car is going, let's say your car is going at 60 miles an hour, and you time that you've been traveling for two hours, well, at 60 miles an hour for two hours, you've covered 120 miles. You know the distance you've covered. We did the same thing with the moon laser. <clears throat> Excuse me. We know the, the speed of the laser because it's the speed of light. We mm -hmm. can time when it left Texas and when it came back. And from that, we can calculate the distance to the moon to within inches. Oh, wow. Within inches. <laughs> and that has enabled us to confirm something we suspected from other areas of science, that the moon is moving away. Mm. It's moving away only about an inch and a half per year. Hmm. That's roughly the rate at which your fingernails grow, yeah. so it's not a big speed away. But over billions of years, right. this means the moon has moved away quite a bit from the Earth, and it's continuing to move away. Very interesting. Another thing that we left behind on the moon, and actually, by the way, that just makes me think, you know, we still have skeptics that we ever landed on the moon. Maybe we should start a program <clears throat> to let people check out those lasers, because it would be hard to deny it if you could actually see the reflection going on. Well, this is this this conspiracy theory drives astronomers <laughs> I'll crazy. Bet. I'll bet. But, but now I think we've finally gotten to the to the best proof, which is mm. that there's a spacecraft called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, mm -hmm. LRO, yeah. which is orbiting the moon right now and taking amazingly detailed pictures. And that has actually shown us not just the landing sites mm. and the vessels we left behind, but the actual tracks oh, wow. that the astronauts left with their footprints or with the little car they have. You can actually see those tracks on the moon. So I think that will finally lay to rest any suspicion that we weren't there. I don't know, man. If people can convince themselves there's a flat Earth, they can convince themselves of anything. But uh, I'll check that out. That sounds pretty cool. Another thing that we left behind that uh, I did not know about until I started preparing for this uh, interview were seismic detectors. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. So just like on Earth, earthquakes can tell you not just what's happening on the surface, but the ways from those earthquakes penetrate into the depth of planet Earth and allow us to know more about the structure of our planet. In the same way, moonquakes have helped us learn what the moon is like inside. <clears throat> because we don't have any way of digging into the moon right now. But we actually did this experiment where we took, after the astronauts returned to the command module, we dropped the vessel they came in back on the moon so it would cause a moonquake. And then the moonquake measuring instruments, the seismometers, measured how those waves shook the moon. Mm. And that gave us a little bit of information about the structure of the moon. Hmm. We also have spacecraft now that can measure the gravity of the moon at each point as they orbit the moon. So we can compare the gravitational pull in different parts of the moon, and that tells us what the inside is made of. So we've pieced together a pretty good picture of the layers of the moon and compared them to the layers of the Earth. We also get this very clear confirmation of what we talked about a minute ago, that the moon is still being pummeled continuously, hmm. that chunks of material are still hitting the moon. Uh, we ourselves, the Earth, 
get pummeled as well, but only the larger chunks make it through. We know, for example, on Earth, 65 million years ago, a very large chunk got through the atmosphere and actually caused worldwide devastation. We think that's what killed the dinosaurs and many other species 65 million years ago. But for the most part, we haven't been hit that much, whereas the moon keeps getting hit all the time. And that's partly what caused the big layer of dust that's on the moon, the pulverization of rock after rock hitting the moon makes them fragment into smaller and smaller pieces. And the dust in which the astronauts left those beautiful boot prints, that's testimony to how many impacts have hit the moon over billions of years. Oh, very interesting. So there has been plenty of moon-based activity even since the last uh, manned mission to the moon in 1972 that's taken the form of robot manned missions. And since the U.S. stopped going to the moon with manned missions, as again in 1972, other countries have been getting into the game as well. It's become more of an internationalized effort. So what, what can you tell us about what moon missions in the last uh, 50 years or so have, have been like and what have they taught us since those manned missions? Right. So we should just mention that even before the U.S. got a human onto the moon, the first landings on the moon were done by the Soviet Union, hmm. uh, which annoyed us to no end. Uh, that's what Russia used to be called, the Soviet Union. And that was part of the impetus for the United States to do something spectacular, like land a human on the moon, because they had already landed a robot, soft landed a robot on the moon. But many countries have since then gotten into the game. It's become an international kind of project to observe the moon. There are Indian and Chinese and European spacecraft going around the moon. An Israeli spacecraft was going to go into orbit but failed. We know just a couple of days ago an Indian spacecraft was postponed. So many countries are getting into it, and we've learned a number of things. One you mentioned, that the backside of the moon is quite a bit different, surprisingly different from the front side. But we've also been able to take amazing pictures of the moon. So even though we don't get any more rocks right now, we've been able to get amazingly detailed pictures of the moon and learn much more about moon geology and moon history. In addition, uh, just this January, January 2019, the Chinese soft-landed a spacecraft on the backside of the moon, the first backside landing, and a little robot rover came out. It was mm. called the Jade Rabbit in mm -hmm. Chinese. And the little Jade Rabbit has been exploring the wow. backside of the moon, analyzing rocks, etc. Now, if you think about that, that's that's really difficult. If it's yeah. really the backside of the moon... How do you communicate side, with it? Exactly. That side never sees the Earth. How to communicate? So the Chinese, before they ever launched that mission, put a satellite into mm. orbit around the moon, which goes from the front side to the back side. And that's the relay satellite that lets yeah. them communicate with the uh, spacecraft and the rover <laughs> they have on the, on the back side. But very impressive as a mission. Yeah. That's um, amazing. So we've looked at all that, and one of the things that's come out of all this, mm -hmm. to finally get to the specific question, um, is we have found that the moon shows signs of water. Mm. It was actually an Indian mission that discovered right. that. an Indian mission and a number of others have now confirmed it, that there is the vapor coming from the moon, particularly from the polar regions of the moon, that's, that's a sign of water. Mm. And that shouldn't be. We know <laughs> that this hot impact, this violent collision that made mm -hmm. the moon, 
all things like water and hydrogen and oxygen evaporated, just went out of the moon, and only um, heavier and harder materials coalesced to make the moon. There's no water that is part of the moon originally. Mm. So where the heck does water seem to come from when these spacecraft observe it? And we think it's a case of special delivery. Mm. We think that chunks of ice from elsewhere in the solar system uh, occasionally come by the inner solar system, and some of them hit the moon. Now, if they hit the, the sort of the central part of the moon, they'll just evaporate when the sunlight hits them. But at the poles, there are deep craters where the sunlight never gets to them, where the bottom of the crater is isolated from sunlight. And there, if a comet were to go hit it, that's what we call these icy chunks as comets. If a comet were to hit one of those deep craters, it would, in fact, sustain itself. It wouldn't evaporate. Mm. And water could remain at the bottom of these craters. And we think quite a bit of water, many comets worth of water, is now stored in these deep craters at the poles of the moon. Uh, the United States, when they sent up the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, attached a little crash spacecraft to it. And they crashed the spacecraft into one of these craters and produced the plume of water oh, coming wow. out, which we could then observe. So it's now established yeah. that there is this icy water waiting for settlers someday who go to the moon. All right, well, that's a great segue into the next topic I want to get to. want to remind our listeners one last time that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. We are once again talking about moon science. While everyone else is talking about the moon landing, we want to focus on the science and what we learned 50 years ago when Apollo 11 brought man to the moon for the very first time ever. Our guest once again is Andrew Fracknoy, the Emeritus Chair of Foothill College's Astronomy Department. So, yeah, great segue once again. So let's dig into that. We have heard from some of our political leaders that they want to bring us back to the moon as soon, it sounds like, as maybe 2024, though I've heard that that may be a little bit overambitious. And key to those plans is they want to explore the possibilities of what could be done with that water. So what could be done with that water if we were able to get back to the moon? Well, so as you say, the, the United States plans a program which is now being called Artemis because they hope to send a woman to the moon, mm. and Apollo's sister was Artemis. Um, these plans are very, very ambitious, and nothing about what's been done so far in the direction of reviving our human lunar program seems to be on schedule <laughs> and on budget. Sounds so, about right. Uh, although the current administration hopes to be reelected re and mm. would like to achieve this landing during the last year that they're in office, uh, many of the engineers actually associated with the program say it's very unlikely that we can get all the things done. They want to not just go to the moon, but have a station in orbit around the moon, mm. much like we have the International Space Station in orbit around the Earth. A manned station? Uh, well, not yet. Mm. But a station which could be the staging area mm -hmm. where the Earth craft arrives mm. and a different lunar craft already there put together by robots into that station will then go down to the moon. And no part of that station yet exists. None of it's in orbit. So we're not sure this is going to happen by 2024. They're waiting to get the kit from Ikea at this point. <laughs> That's right. So on the other hand, you're quite right that many people in many countries are dreaming about further exploration of the moon. Certainly the robots, like the, the Chinese lander, uh, can done, do some of it. 
But in terms of really knowing what to look for, in terms of picking up rocks, it would be great to have scientists be on the moon actively selecting things and, and learning more. And then some people, thinking even longer range, worry that we're doing such bad things to the Earth. It's really scary to have all our eggs in one basket, genetically speaking. Every human, every human genetic material is here on the Earth. If, for example, someday another giant rock hits the Earth like it did 65 million years ago and we have complete devastation of life on Earth, or if we ourselves make global warming so horrible that the Earth becomes unlivable, wouldn't it be great to have a separate station somewhere else with humans and maybe with a library of Earth's genetic material so what, if the Earth is really in bad trouble, we can reconstruct things elsewhere? Now, there's a lot of debate among scientists and political thinkers about whether that second station for humanity should be the moon, hmm. which is close but really hostile, Mm -hmm. and or whether it should be Mars, which is further, but a tiny bit more hospitable, still quite hostile, but a little bit more hospitable, a little bit stronger gravity, et cetera, more air, and so on. So these are questions that are for future generations to settle. But one reason to explore the moon is to think a little bit more firmly about the future of humanity, mm. not just being in one place on one planet. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that that's an important through line for the entire space program is it gives us something higher to aspire to that ideally transcends any particular country and, and transcends uh, any particular political conflict. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if instead of the U.S. making this complicated plan to go to the moon by itself, if we actually joined with other countries and had an international program that to put people nice. back on the moon? That would be a, a tremendous testimony to the presence of intelligent life on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> We've been looking for it for a long time. That's true. Last question I want to throw at you uh, just to kind of wrap everything up in a bag. You know, you, you mentioned all the ways that the moon is a remarkable feature in the solar system as compared to any other planet. What does that say about the remarkableness of the Earth itself, that it is, it has such a strange neighbor and, and, and grew up in such a strange way as compared to any other body in the solar system? Well, that's actually a very deep question. We have thought a lot about this excellent question that you asked. To what degree do we owe the presence of life to the fact that the Earth has a large moon? We are, after all, the only place in the solar system so far that we know life exists. Did the beginning of life, which may have happened in tide pools originally, depend on there being a big moon that actually causes tides to happen for the water to go up and then recede? Um, to what degree did the moon shield us to, to some, in some way from chunks of rock hitting the earth too frequently? So how much of the presence of life on earth is because we have a large moon? And does that mean that elsewhere, now that we know that all around the galaxy, other stars have planets, we've even found some Earth-like planets out there, will they also need to have a moon before some alien KCBS listeners <laughs> might be able to exist on those planets? And we're all over the map about this. We don't know whether life could have started without a moon. Many people think so. But others say we should be looking not just for planets elsewhere, but maybe moons elsewhere if we want to find our counterparts among the stars. Wow. 
All right. Well, a lot to think about and apparently uh, potentially a lot to be thankful for for our uh, sparkly neighbor up there. Hopefully we've given our listeners a lot of food for thought today. Uh, It's certainly given me plenty to think about. Uh, Our guest once again was Andrew Fracknoy. He is the Emeritus Chair of Foothill College's Astronomy Department. Andrew, it was great talking to you. Thanks for stopping by. My pleasure. And remember, you can find past editions of In-Depth online at the KCBS website. Just head on over to kcbsradio.com or check us out on iTunes. And if you do, check us out on iTunes. And you're so inclined, uh, please leave a rating and review when you stop by. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.